And so I'm going to continue in my sermon series on the divine signs of Christ. This is the sixth sign we're going to talk about today, and you can get all the prior signs by going on the website, and I hope you, that you do it. And in this sixth sign, Jesus will encounter a blind man. And so it becomes significant and profound because Jesus never just does a single miracle, but it's uh, really metaphorical for the general stature of blindness in this world. You know, C.S. Lewis used the term shadowlands, shadowlands, to describe effectively the state of the world, meaning looking through a glass darkly. And that's what the world does. It's, it sees some light, but it doesn't really see clearly. Uh, and the light you see is obstructed by the fall of man, sin from the Garden of Eden. And sin, death, and suffering all follow along from this. And so we only see shadows uh, until we come to Christ, who is the light of the world. Uh, and so this becomes an important sermon today, important for you to understand, and important for you to reach out to others who are not saved. And so the setting of this sign uh, is just as important as the sign itself, uh, because we understand its significance. This miracle took place in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, and that's one of the primary uh, feasts that the Jewish people celebrated. And it was a feast dedicated to light. And so what would happen, there would be four enormous bowls set up in Jerusalem where they would have about 120 logs in each one of these uh, bowls, and they would light them, and the light would illuminate the dark sky. And while this went on, the men would dance around the bowl. So you can imagine what that had to be like before electricity was invented. And you see that light lighting up the dark skies. Uh, and so prior to the age of electricity, it must have been a fantastic sight. And right in the middle of this sight, Jesus is going to end blindness. And so he encounters a man handicapped by blindness uh, from the time of his birth. And he will be at the pool of Siloam. Uh, and John chapter 9, where this lesson is camped out on, and you'll see the verses up on board, tells us that he had been known darkness his whole life. Uh, and so in uh, verse 2 of that chapter, it says, When Jesus and his disciples saw the blind man, the disciples immediately asked, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. You know, so many of us come to that conclusion. We see illness, we see suffering, and many of us say, well, some, there must have been some obstacle, some sin in a person's life. Uh, but Jesus removed that immediately, uh, and he said immediately, there was no sin. There was no sin. This condition that the man had was purposed for the glory of God. Uh, and you have to understand that. So yes, we understand that some suffering in this world takes place because we abuse our bodies. We don't do what's right. We don't take care of us. But that really, when you see suffering uh, or handicap, there's a greater condition going on there. And God is using these things for the greater glory that he has. And so there is a very limited link between personal sin uh, and suffering. Do people suffer because they have sinned? Well, as I said before, if they've abused their bodies, if they've not taken care of themselves, these things happen. But scripture and human experience shows really that God has a greater purpose 
uh, in the things that we suffer. And so we should be very careful in rendering human judgments uh, on these kinds of things, and Jesus corrected them immediately. Verse 3 in chapter 9 says as follows, Jesus made this point when he answered the disciples by stating, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. He was blind so that God might use that blindness to glorify him. And I would say this to many of you who are suffering and going through difficult times. I want you to know that within the will of God, even as we pray that you're healed, that God is using some of these conditions, I'm convinced, to advance his work. I know that we go through the hospitals and walk down the halls. Those people that are saved in those rooms, you almost feel the light of God coming out of those rooms as distinguished from those rooms where there is no hope, where there is no God. And so that's how God is using us. So let's drill down on an important doctrine here, and that is that there were many left at the pool of Siloam and the pool of Bethesda uh, from the lame person, there were many that were not healed. Many were not healed. And we're going to talk about healing for a moment. Let us be doctrinally correct on this. And you know when I, when I preach, I focus on the Bible. I don't give you my opinion. My opinion is irrelevant. But what does Scripture say uh, about healing? Yes, we have a responsibility to ask the Lord for healing. But within the perfect will of God. Amen, church? You understand that? Within the perfect will of God. This does not mean that God will heal in every case. And he will not within his perfect will. The perfect example, the prototype of that issue was the Apostle Paul, uh, who prayed three separate times to be delivered from a thorn in the flesh. And it had to be very significant for him to do it. He felt it was obstructing his ministry uh, of the gospel. And so he asked God, take it away from me. Don't let me go through this. Heal me. And the response from God was, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Meaning what? Meaning that sometimes healing is not going to take place, that God is using that to advance his work. His grace is sufficient for you. Now, the 12 apostles uh, were also given the specific power to heal the sick, and for 37 years, if you look through the New Testament, wherever they went, they healed those who heard the message of God. Again, healing was attached to understanding the gospel message, yet the miracles, including healing, uh, were confirmation of the truth of the gospel that they preached. But the 12 apostles also did not heal everyone. Uh, often there were Christians left unwell despite the ap apostolic power. Uh, and if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, you'll see this verse on the board. Paul says to Timothy... Quote, use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. In other words, I know you're sick. 
I know you're suffering. I'm not going to lay hands on you. I'm not going to ask right now through the, through the power of the Lord that, that you be healed, but we'll pray for you, uh, and, and so we'll see how God's will is. In other words, he did not lay hands on him to heal him. Uh, and so it was not God's will, as Paul saw it, to heal Timothy that way. The healing ministry, really, was not for everyone's personal convenience. Let's get that. It was not for everyone's personal convenience. Rather, it was a sign from God to the Jews of the Old Covenant primarily. That's what they were being taught of the validity of the apostolic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ultimate question in each case is, what is your will? And so I would say to you, as you're suffering, as you're going through sickness, you bow your head and you say, Lord, heal me. But at the end of every prayer, what within your perfect will? Because your grace is enough for me and you will strengthen me. And so God does heal today. There are people that are being healed today, but within his perfect will. Now, as I drill down on this doctrine for you, uh, and there's a distinguishing factor between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so if you have people cite some verses from the Old Testament on this issue, be forewarned. Uh, in the Old Testament covenant God gave to Israel, there were a number of provisions to regulate their lives. And that covenant was an emphasis on physicality and on material things that they had. In Deuteronomy 28, when you read that at home, God promises to reward Israel's faithfulness with freedom from disease. He promised them that they would be free from disease. Uh, this is a clue to the miracles in the Bible. God promised Israel long life, health, Children, flocks, corn, grapes, and victory over their enemies if they stayed faithful to the Lord. At the same time, God threatened them, and this is important because you have to look at the other side of the equation. He threatened them with sickness, barrenness, disease, drought, famine, the loss of livestock, an enemy occupation if they forsook the Lord. Because Israel was a theocracy. It was being led and governed by God himself. Uh, and so this is the context uh, of Israel's relationship with sickness and healing. The promise to be kept, quote, free from every disease in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 15, was specifically part of the Mosaic Covenant with Israel under this theocracy. Such a promise is not unilaterally given to the church. Okay, church? You understand that. God can heal. God will heal within his perfect will. But his grace, his grace that we have that they didn't have, is sufficient for us. And so Jesus performs this sixth sign by healing the blind man. He spat on the ground, uh, he made mud out of the dust, and he put the mud on the man's eyes. He then told the man to go back to the pool of Siloam, 
uh, in John chapter 9, verse 7. The results of Jesus' instructions are extraordinary. As you read that verse, John 9 says, He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. The man born blind could now see. The man who lived in darkness his whole life now sees the light. But the sixth sign points to a greater spiritual meaning beyond just the healing of one man. Jesus didn't come just to perform miracles or heal individual people. He came to bring light to the blind world. Uh, and so Jesus shows in this sign who he is and what his purpose is and what he had come to do. He did not come to give light to just one man, but he came to give light to the entire world. And through this sign, Jesus reveals he is the Son of God and the light of the world. That's the nature of who we worship. That's the nature of who he is. And in verse 5 of chapter 9, he said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You know, we live in a dark place. If you have any idea how dark the world is, just listen to the news over the last week and a half. All right? You see the perpetuation of evil in Israel. You see the slaying of innocent men, women, and babies. You see the desecration of bodies. And what you understand here is this is perfect evil. And just like you saw it in other wars, just like you saw it in World War II, just like you saw it in Hitler, from time to time evil rises up and makes itself especially visible, and that's what you have here. But Jesus has come to be the light of the world. Jesus has come to expose this evil and to take this evil away. Uh, and so the world needs to recognize that they must come to Jesus. And the question becomes, would these people who experienced this extraordinary miracle, would they come to understand that Jesus was the light of the world? Well, let's look at the responses of the various groups uh, because it's insightful. First, let's look at the response of the neighbors, the people that were with this blind man who saw him grow up and saw what his condition was. Well, they were the first people to respond to the healing of the blind man. Uh, they had seen him begging over his life uh, at the Pool of Siloam, and now they were utterly bewildered and amazed by the healing. Their focus, however, was not on the spiritual nature of the healing, but how did this incredible event happen? Uh, how were your eyes opened, they asked the blind man. They were interested in the mechanics of what took place. They did not care who had performed the miracle or what was the spiritual purpose of the miracle. Rather, they were looking mechanically at how it had happened. And after all, because they could not figure it out, what did they do? They took him to the experts, the Pharisees. <laughs> Group number two. The Pharisees. You've heard this story before. And so, having studied the failure of the Pharisees to discern the spiritual meaning of Jesus in the prior signs, it should come as no shock to you that they did not get it again and that they missed completely the point of the healing of the blind man. Again, they wanted to know, they wanted to know how this happened. How did this happen? Rather than what it meant 
rather than really what was the spiritual significance. And in verse 15 of chapter 9, the blind man responds, really, I think, ironically, the blind man responded, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I do see. Well, they focused on the fact that the healing had been done, guess when? On the Sabbath. Oh, no. Jesus, you're not at it again. You're doing this on the Sabbath? Haven't we been through this before? And they were upset that Jesus had made mud on the Sabbath. Do you throw your hands up in just bewilderment? He made mud. How dare you make mud on the Sabbath? Do you see what happens, people, when so-called religious people get confirmed in their religiosity and their legalism? They lose the sight of the cross. They lose the sight of God. And yet, instead, they say, you made mud. How dare you make mud? It didn't matter that a man who had been born blind was healed. It didn't matter. You made blood. Mud, And so now they have a debate among themselves that John writes about uh, in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. How do you like that? There it is. You want to know if a guy's godly? Does he observe our rules, our regulations? That's the determination of holiness and godliness. And yet, others asked But how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. There was a division in the Pharisees. I want you to know that not in this story, you won't know, but we know in later events that some Pharisees came to Christ. Some Pharisees became Christians. And so even though we indict them as a group, individually some did come to Christ. And so after interrogating uh, the parents, uh, the man's parents, the Pharisees brought in the healed man for a second round of questioning. I love this poor guy. Come on back. We've got more questions for you. This time, they focused on who. Who had performed uh, this event? Who did it? And you see this here in verse uh, 24 25. They said to the man born blind, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. How about that? Give God the praise, but the guy who did this to you is a sinner. The man's response was, and I love this, whether he be a sinner or not, I know not. One thing I know, whereas I was blind, now I see. Isn't that an amazing statement from someone really who hadn't really come to faith yet? He understood that he had been touched that he experienced a miracle, that God had come into his life. Uh, This exchange between the Pharisees uh, and the blind man is both ironic and humorous. Look in verses 26 to 27, because it continues. They don't stop. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You can imagine that they're losing their mind. They can't believe what they're seeing. What magic did he perform? He answered, I have told you already, and you do not want to listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
I mean, you see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit on this man, even though he's not yet in faith. The words that are coming out of his mouth are indicting to these so-called religious people. These, you want to become his disciples too? Well, the last thing the Pharisees wanted was to become a disciple of Christ. And now they considered these words, words as an insult. Uh, and now they reviled the blind man. How about that? All this guy did was be born blind and now he can see. And now he's being reviled by the religious leaders. Look in verses 28 to 29. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Uh, and he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Considering this man's words and insult, they reviled him and their response, their defense was this, we are Moses' disciples. We are the, Moses, the disciples of Moses. We know that God spake through Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. Well, guess what? If you had listened to what Moses had told you, he told you that there was a greater prophet coming. And now he walks within you, and God has demonstrated to you, and you are blind. You think you see, but you don't. And so the proud Pharisees, you see, cling to the pedigree that went back to Moses. We have the law. But they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Again, this becomes the hypocritical aspect of people uh, stuck on religiosity. They were certain that God had spoken to Moses, but they had no idea of Jesus' origin. The healed man's response to them is once more ironic, and now it's in verse 30. The man in verse 30 says, the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Every time you see God deflecting it back at them, right? Deflecting it back. That's ironic. You don't know where he came from, but all he did was make me see. And so the man who had received the sight uh, was now saying that the religious leaders of his day were blind to the power of God. And I have to say it's the same today, that so many people, so many churches are really blind to the power of God. Uh, and we pray that God will open their eyes. The blind man goes on to teach the teachers. He goes on to teach the Pharisees in verses 31 to 33. And he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The man said the healing proof we're dealing with the Son of God. Yet, what was the response of the Pharisees? They excommunicate him. They excommunicate him. They throw him out of the synagogue. And so instead of embracing the truth about Jesus, the religious leaders rejected the healed man and the one who had healed him. Uh, in their spiritual blindness, they refused to see that they had come into the presence of the light of the world, in presence in the Son of God. Now let's look at the response of the parents. The parents testified that their son was indeed born blind, but they admitted they had no idea how he had gained his sight. 
They advised the Pharisees, talk to our son. Ask him. He'll tell you. We don't really know anything other than he was born blind and now he sees. Verse 22 is insightful here. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They shrunk from telling the truth that the one who healed their son was the son of God. They also refused to see the light of the world. And I will sadly say that this is the state of many churches today. Do you ever wonder while people stay in churches that are really, what do I say, defunct? That the word of God is not being preached in a vital way? And people stay year after year after year. Why? They are effectively like the, the uh, parents. They're afraid to step out because they don't want to lose their religiosity. They love the fact that they have the traditions and the past, that their families have been there, even though they're not being fed spiritually. And my father would preach periodically to the church, and he said, if you are not being fed here, go to another church. You understand? Go to another church if you're not being fed the word of God. But that's what this is about. You come out every Sunday because you're expecting to hear the word of God, some passage from the Bible, some word that went back 2,100 years that touches your heart, that you know Jesus himself is involved, and yet what do they do? They did nothing. They were afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. Well, let's look at the most important guy, the response of the formerly blind man. After he was healed, sadly, he was excommunicated from the synagogue. That's probably not a surprise to you. Many of you have seen that in modern age. Uh, and so now he meets Jesus one more time. Uh, and so Jesus now asks him unequivocally, Dost thou believe in the Son of God? That's in verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of God? Now, this man had not seen Jesus before because he was blind uh, until his sight had been restored at the pool of Siloam. And by that time, Jesus was gone. Uh, and so when Jesus meets, meets him the second time, the blind man doesn't know who he is. Uh, but without knowing who stood before him, uh, the man reveals his readiness to believe in the Son of God. And this is how faith comes into our lives. We're lost, we're desperate, we're dark, and yet somehow God touches us and gives us a faith to recognize, I need a Savior. And as we reach out to God, he reaches across eternity and he saves us. And this is exactly what you see here, as this is the plan of God for all of humanity. His answer to Jesus' question about the Son of God was, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? You see the nature of the heart. The man is ready to receive. He's ready to receive. That's John 9, verse 36. And now, in an extraordinary act of divine disclosure, Jesus reveals his identity to the man. Verse 37, Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one 
speaking with you. The man responded immediately and unequivocally to this gracious act of divine revelation. He said, Lord, I believe. And so as I tell you week after week when you hear people saying, well, Jesus was a good man, but he never said he was God. Well, what Bible are you reading? I hope you're taking notes because all I'm giving you is week after week after week powerful evidence of the fact that Jesus said over and over, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I came to save humanity. And so this man now coming face to face with God worshipped Jesus. Uh, and he responded by not asking how he had been healed, but rather believing in the power of God and the power of Christ. And he worshipped him. Uh, the man born blind could now see the light of the world. By the end of this story, frankly, the only one not blind is the blind man. The rest of them are all blind. The Pharisees, the neighbors, they're all blind. The parents, they're all blind. Uh, and so you understand this is the nature of the world. The world thinks it sees, but it doesn't. It's blind. It's in the shadow lands, as C.S. Lewis called it. And so in verse 39, Jesus ties this whole lesson together, and he reveals the spiritual significance of the sixth sign. Uh, and he said that the sixth sign was about spiritual sight rather than physical sight. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. How about that? Those who think they see will be blinded. But those who are blinded will see. And I've had personal experience with this. You know, 20 years ago, as the Lord began to call me in, into his work, uh, Tom Lofkin and I started a, a Bible study uh, down in Port Royal. And so we sent out 250 postcards. 250 postcards to all of the neighbors, inviting them to come to a men's Bible study. How about that? How about that? Uh, to Port Royal. And I got not one response. Not one response. Now, I came to reflect after some time, because that was a bitter pill to swallow. Uh, and I came to reflect that I was doing this in the will of God, that the lighthouse had to be put up, irrespective of whether people came to the lighthouse. And people did. And you know that over time, as that... Uh, Study drifted from Port Royal into the center of Naples. More than 200 men came every Monday, and it will start again on uh, Monday, January 8th. But here's the, the lesson that I learned. I learned that God had called me to preach the word of God, and he gave me a choice. I could either go to Africa, or I could teach a Bible study in Port Royal, and I chose the more difficult assignment. <laughs> and that's the nature of what you see. The Pharisees refused to accept. The Pharisees refused to open their eyes. The fact that the Son of God was there and walking with them, they refused to accept it. And they remained blind. And that's how the world is. I want you to understand that that's how the world is, and your job is to go out and expose the blindness, even if they're not interested, just as I did 
with the 250 postcards. And you here are all a residue of the work that started there. And so here's the thing. <clears throat> we know from reading the Bible that the world gropes in darkness. Look at Isaiah 59, verse 9. This is written 700 years before Christ. Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. That is the nature of humanity. That's the nature of the world. They are in darkness. They think they can see, but they don't. Only Jesus Christ can provide the light to this world to keep people who grope in darkness, to let them see the light. We are all born blind. Every single one of you was born blind until you recognized it and gave your heart to Jesus. And so the Pharisees did not see him. The religious elite did not see him. But the question I have for you today, do you see him? Do you see the light of the world? And so Jesus came in this sixth, sixth sign uh, really to bring people out of darkness. I am the son of God. I am God. And I have come to bring light to a dark world. And so this is the essence of this lesson. And so by performing this sign, Jesus revealed this was the true nature of his call. He demonstrated that people will not always live in darkness. They will not always live in shadows. But by giving a blind man sight, Jesus demonstrated that there was something better that the Son of God could perform. Uh, and so in prophesying the coming of Christ, Isaiah declared the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, that if they dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Before you were op had your eyes opened, you were dead men walking. But because God, in his grace, saw your condition, and you reached out, and you said, Lord, I believe God opened your eyes, and he gave you light. And so now you walk, even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you see the light. One day when he returns, and I believe more and more that day is coming closer and closer. One day when he comes, the entire world will see the light of the Son of God. He will take darkness out of this world once and for all. We will all at that day behold the great light. We will no longer look through a glass darkly. I pray that before that day comes, that each of us will have an individual relationship with Christ to take the scales off our life, to see the glorified vision of the light of the world. Amen, church? Let's bow our heads. Let's bow. Our... Lord, I thank you for this message. I thank you that you have come into this world to rid this world of darkness. Father, I ask you that you embrace us and love us, that as we go out to the world and teach others about this, that you give them the insight of this message, that those born in darkness will recognize that they're born in darkness. And those of us that stay in places where we're not being spiritually fed, but think we're there because of tradition, because of our parents, and in fact we're not being fed, that you will touch them with the Holy Spirit, that they will recognize that they also need to be fed 
that they also need to see the light of the world. Lord, let this message resonate with us this week. Preach us, teach us to bring this message to a lost world. We put all of this in your precious name. Amen.